Okay, so we got Ramsher, who's on the fence as far as being a patriot. We got Mr. Reinhardt, who is definitely a patriot. We got Mrs. Reinhardt, who is a patriot, but her brothers are all captains on the Tory side. Yes, and correct. And they, they have been appointed captains after they took over the Ramsher Mill right next to the Reinhardt property. Yes, that's correct. Where do we go from here? <laughs> so, <clears throat> however it happens, uh, information arrives in Rutherford's camp of the, the the Tory encampment and he realizes that this is a problem and he needs to disperse them and so he decides to reassemble the the Whig militia and press on instead of holding the the frontier where he had been against an advance by the British he decides to turn north and go after this Tory encampment and try and break it up but it's going to take time for those guys to assemble. And so in the meantime, he sends word to uh, Francis Locke, who is the commander of the Rowan County militia, and he tells him to go ahead and proceed to Ramsar's Mill and to, to meet, or rather, not to proceed all the way to Ramsar's Mill, but to meet him uh, on the way to Ramsar's Mill. So Locke's regiment is actually already in the field, and so he is headed in that direction. Uh, Rutherford is reassembling his force and promises to meet Locke on the way. Those weren't the only two forces that were joining together. My understanding is they're coming from all different places. Yeah, so all of, you know, the North Carolina militia broadly uh, constructed the, was divided into basically two halves. The eastern half of the state was uh, commanded by Caswell and the western half by Rutherford. And so Rutherford, Rutherford is the commander of this entire force, um, this entire division of the North Carolina militia. But he is, you know, each of his colonels commands a regiment that originates in a different county. So generally each county had its own regiment, its own colonel. And so in, in reassembling this army, Rutherford is sending out messengers to all of these different colonels who are mostly in their home counties to to assemble and to rejoin him. But Locke's regiment, which is the Rowan County Regiment, was already in the field, and so Rutherford, rather than telling them to assemble in Charlotte, gives them directions to uh, just proceed to a rendezvous point. Did anybody from South Carolina? Yes. So there were actually a handful of South Carolina refugees, which would become the the basis of of Sumter's brigade, right? The the very the original nucleus of uh, Sumter's brigade, which was still had retreated across the the border into North Carolina and was collecting South Carolina refugees. Now there are only a handful of them, definitely less than fifty. The numbers vary, but definitely less than 50 of these South Carolina refugees, but Thomas Sumter was among them, and Sumter was with Rutherford's. I see. Uh, all right, so they're all converging onto Ramsher's Mill, and then where do we go? Locke arrives at the rendezvous point earlier than, uh, than Rutherford does. Where's the rendezvous? The rendezvous point is Dixon's Plantation at the Forks of the Catawba. Uh, and so the two forces were meant to, to meet there, um, and then they would decide together uh, whether or not to, uh, to press on. Unfortunately, the, the final messenger that specified the rendezvous point to, to Locke never arrived. 
And so his earlier orders to press on toward uh, more, his kind of general orders, were all that he had heard. And so Rutherford arrives at the rendezvous point the next day um, and is essentially waiting for Locke, whereas Locke has already moved beyond that point um, and is closer to, to more. Now, ultimately, Locke would uh, receive further reinforcements from a number of other partisan bands that were in the area that would come into his camp, bringing his strength to something like 400. And they would hold a council of war at Mountain Creek to try and decide what they were going to do. They now realized they were outnumbered by Moore's command at, um, at Ramsar's Mill. And so some of them voted to essentially drop back and find a defensive position. There was a second group that wanted to fall back and unite with, uh, with Rutherford. But the, the final group, the, the one that ultimately carried the day, decided to attack while they still had the element of surprise rather than, rather than delaying. And so they decided to go ahead and attack more on their own rather than trying to reunite with Rutherford. Describe Ramsar's Mill so people can put that in, in their mind's eye and, and where the, the, the forces are coming from. Yeah, so uh, the mill itself is on uh, a, a stream. Uh, and, you know, as, as most mills are, there would be uh, like a mill race that went uh, past it. There would be uh, a pond that was uh, basically dammed up um, in order to provide water for it. And then the Reinhardt farm was on the other side of the creek. And adjacent to it is this pretty imposing hill, which is where the, the bulk of the Tories were camped. Um, up on top of this hill. And again, if, if you go there today, uh, the, the Lincolnton High School is there. It's right up on top of the hill. Um, and that's the position that the Tories were intending to defend. So what day did they decide to attack the hill? So um, the attack comes on the morning of the 20th. Locke had basically made the decision to attack, or his council of war had made the decision to attack late on the night of the 19th. And so they marched through the night and uh, they arrive and attack uh, on the morning. It, they are joined in the middle of the night on their, uh, on their march, their night march, by the, the local Whigs from the specific Ramsar's Mill area uh, under a guy named Adam Reap. So there were about 40 local militiamen uh, who stumble into their, their column in the middle of the night with you know, important intelligence about Moore's position. Uh, and so by the time they get there in the morning, they have a very clear idea of what the Tory dispositions were. So did they find them with their arms stacked? Did they, did they surprise them or did they uh, uh, walk into an ambush? So it, it's a little bit in between. The Tories had set out sentries. They were not necessarily expecting an attack, but they had set out their pickets far enough from, the, uh, from their main position that they were able to alert them when... Locke's force arrived. There was some skirmishing, there was, you know, some exchange of fire, and that essentially alerted the camp, and they were able to, you know, hastily assemble a defensive line on the hill before their pickets were pushed back. And so the initial, the initial Whig attack, you know, it, it quickly pushes in the, the original Tory pickets, but then as it's kind of 
charging as these guys are charging up the hill they run into concerted Tory defense on the hill itself and are themselves pushed back down to the bottom of the hill right so the Tories really had the high ground and kind of to their advantage they did okay, yeah so when they're pushing them back down uh, the hill in my mind's eye I'm thinking they're pushing them back down towards the creek so actually the other side of the hill the other side the, of the opposite creek. side of the hill yeah. yep right. and uh, so what happens then once the Americans regroup I'm sorry everybody's Americans once the Whigs regroup at the bottom of the hill they you know decide to go about this in a little bit more of a concerted way but you know organization in these these militia companies was fairly loose. So there's some officers, but there's not a real clear chain of command or, you know, subordinate units within these these various companies that are well delineated. And so it's hard for them to execute any, you know, complex maneuvers with a lot of moving parts. And so what really happened is that they begin this extended firefight with the Tories up the hill and gradually over time their line just extended. Um, and it extended in both directions and sort of started to wrap around the hill. So I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm thinking no one's in a linear battle formation like no. it would be at Camden no. or Lexington or Concord, anything like that. We're talking farmers in the back country coming together. Some of them are hunters, some of them aren't, and they're just moving up or falling back, not in any real order. No, yeah. So it would have been very disorganized right. there you know there are some officers who have some limited amount of control over their men but yeah it would have been it would have been very disorganized and mostly these militiamen are making their decisions about where to go and how to fight either individually or in small groups kind of when you say that it kind of makes me think about king's mountain where uh, the leaders at king's mountain said every man is your own captain yeah once the battle starts um, yeah, it's very similar to the, the fighting at King's Mountain, except maybe even more so um, because, you know, Locke's force has even less internal organization to it than the expedition at King's Mountain had. I see. I see. So did they go back and forth up the mountain or was it they pushed For, it down one time and then they go back up? For several hours, it's it's back and forth up and down the hill. The, you know, it's it's hard to even set clear phases of the battle because part of the American line, the Whig line would be advancing while other parts were retreating. You know, it's, it's all very kind of localized and chaotic and you know, it's, it's up and down the hill for several hours. So who wins? So ultimately the Whigs did win. They were able to get uh, almost entirely around the Tory position. So by the end of the battle, the Tories are almost entirely surrounded. They also were finally able to take a big chunk of the ridge line. And so the, the perimeter basically constricts around the apex point of the hill was the last thing the Tories were, ta were holding on to. And then Nicholas Warlick, uh, who was, you know, this charismatic Tory captain, local Tory captain, was killed. And again, as you see over and over again, as we saw with Fishing Creek, as we see with Kings Mountain, uh, there are multiple Whig militiamen who claim to have killed him. But whatever happened, you know, he, he is killed and the Tory resistance basically collapsed. They retreat through the one small opening that is left to them and across the creek, uh, many of them swimming across the creek, many of them being shot at as they're swimming across the creek. But... An, enough of them did finally 
escape across the creek and uh, reassemble. And that sort of marks the end of the main phase of the battle. Now, of course, it's, it's not over exactly because the Tories had not been dispersed and the, the Whig force was pretty beat up as well. And so both sides are actually kind of trying to delay. Locke was trying to delay to give Rutherford time to arrive because he had sent a messenger to Rutherford who he knew was on his way. And so he's trying to buy time for Rutherford to arrive. And uh, at the same time, the Tories are trying to buy time in order to figure out what to do next. And so there was a negotiation. There were messengers set, sent forth by both sides to try and arrange, you know, the, the Whigs are trying to arrange a Tory surrender. The Tories are trying to arrange their own escape. But in reality, both sides were kind of stalling for time. So how long did that go on before the, the next army arrived at the scene? Yeah, about an hour. Uh, they they sort of wait and stare at each other across the creek. And then Rutherford does finally arrive on the battlefield. And at that point, you know, Warlick had kind of reassembled his army. He had realized that things were hopeless. And so he disperses them. He tells them all to go home. And the Tory army kind of melts away into the countryside. There was a pursuit of the Tory forces, which is actually led by uh, William Richardson Davy. And he did round up a good With number cavalry, of prisoners. Right. Yep. Yeah, he has one of the, the few, you know, legitimately mounted forces in the area. And they did end up rounding up a few more prisoners, but for the most part, uh, the Tories were able to escape. Most of them had been outed, though, and so they couldn't, they couldn't go home. They end up fleeing uh, to South Carolina to the relative safety of the British Army. I see. And that turns out to be really important because when Cornwallis does end up invading North Carolina in the fall, there was very little in terms of local support left to, to support him. So what are the ramifications of Rancher Mill in the whole scheme of things? So the big thing is that it solidifies Whig control in North Carolina. It basically breaks the, the, the Tory presence in Western North Carolina. Uh, it's very quickly followed up by uh, an expedition against Samuel Bryan, who at the same time had been organizing another Tory force in North Carolina at the Forks of the Adkin, and um, he was chased out of North Carolina. And so those two things together mean that the Whigs have essentially consolidated control in North Carolina, and the British would never really break that control. Even um, in September, when they do cross the border and they, you know, move on Charlotte, you know, all the support that they had counted on, both, you know, the logistical support and the, the military support that they had counted on was gone because it had all been driven out of the out of the state. And then again, you know, that invasion of North Carolina turns out to be short lived when they come back again in 1781 in the, the lead up to the race to the Dan. Uh, once again, there's there's no real Tory presence in Western North Carolina left. So Benjamin, I know that you're tied to the 250th anniversary uh, commission in South Carolina uh, for the 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary War, and and you bring to the table a unique perspective uh, and and a historical perspective that that's been your life in many respects. You've been a professor and uh, you've kind of worked on articles and you're working on books and that sort of thing. But tell me what liberty means to you. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> liberty is one of those really interesting uh, words that, that appears all over the, uh, the literature. 
um, you know, the primary sources when we're talking about the American Revolution. And it's really used by, by both sides, by both those who are in favor of the revolution and, and the loyalists as, as well. Because, you know, in a lot of ways, their philosophical basis is the same. The, the philosophical foundations of both sides are drawing on this Whig tradition from recent British history, the British Enlightenment. And, you know, for many of them, liberty, uh, and, and I think this makes sense for me as well, that liberty is really an expression of self-determination, right? That what a lot of people are fighting for here is the ability to run their own affairs. And that may have had specific specific political implications in in the low country with regard to you know the larger questions at stake in the revolution but i think for these backcountry fights you know it's much more it's much more visceral it literally is the right to self-determination and one thing that i think is interesting about you know ramsar's mill in this context is that ramsar's mill is really a counterinsurgency right it's a it's a counter-revolution it is an area where the revolution had already established control and loyalist forces are rebelling against that, that control. And so I think we often forget that, you know, in that sense, these loyalists are fighting for the same thing that uh, a lot of patriots were fighting for in, in other parts of the country. They are fighting for self-determination. They are fighting for the right to run their own lives and their own communities. And so I find these kinds of partisan conflicts really interesting because you can look at both sides and you can see both sides fighting for those same kinds of core ideals. It's interesting, we were having a conversation prior to this episode, and we were talking about uh, some of the same political discussions that are being talked about today or you know, combated in the public forum are some of the same questions that they were, they were discussing back then or they were having this conflict over back then. These conflicts are, are really, you know, they are, they are universal. They cross uh, time periods and and geographical locations too. You know, these are the kind of bedrock conflicts that are built into human society. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.